This passage before us in Hebrews chapter 12, which is really summarizing and concluding all that we have seen prior to this point leading up to to chapter 13, which is an, an explication of practical holiness. So Hebrews 12, 25 to 29 is putting a cap on the, the argument of the majority of the book of Hebrews. And it is showing us God. So I would invite you in Hebrews chapter 12 to look with me at verses 25 through 29. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. If you do not have it, Uh, You may look on the screen behind me and follow along as I read. The author says to us in the power of the Holy Spirit, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service. Your Bible may say worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And my hope and my prayer is that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would open our eyes to see our God as a consuming fire that we may offer to Him in just a few moments grateful worship with reverence and awe. That's the goal for for First Baptist Nixa this morning is to offer unto God grateful worship in reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. It is quite difficult to depict the character of God, to describe what God is like. Many who try fo- fall woefully short. The God that they describe comes across as flat or one-dimensional. In, in an attempt to magnify His love And his kindness, many authors therefore tend to diminish some of his more sharper attributes like his justice and his righteousness and his wrath. That's why the God of their writings comes across more like your your kindly yet indulgent grandfather who utters words of wisdom as you walk side by side along the lake. Words that you might listen to fondly but you but you relegate into the realm of the largely irrelevant. Kind of like, thanks for the advice, Grandpa. That might have applied in your day, you know, 60 years ago, but things move faster now that we have iPhones. Others write God like he's a, uh, a cosmic cheerleader who's up there in the heavens and he's, he's cheering us on from the sidelines while we, who are really kind of the main event, are doing our thing on the playing field, and then he just sort of squeals with delight when we may happen to glance his way. Or they write God like the uh, the spurned lover who who spends his days waiting by the phone, just staring at it, hoping that it will ring. You know, just waiting for us to throw him a line. On the opposite end of the spectrum, 
but still in the, in the category being flat and, and one-dimensional depictions of, of God's character and nature are those who, who tend to paint him as if he were cold and distant and, and loveless, sort of like that employer who only calls you into his office when you've done something wrong so that he can yell at you for a while. All of these depictions, the yelling employer, the squealing cheer, cheerleader, the spurned lover, the the indulgent grandfather, all of them are flat, one-dimensional characters. As if God can, can be either loving or wrathful, merciful or just, but definitely not both at the same time. But when you read the Scriptures, you cannot escape the fact that God is both loving and full of wrath. He is both merciful and just. And that he is all of his attributes. He is all that he is with a burning and holy intensity that we simply have trouble wrapping our minds around. Everlasting torment in hell. That's how intensely God hates sin. Crushing his only begotten beloved son in the Isaiah 53.10 sort of way. Crushing his son beneath the, the hammer of his wrath. Sending him to die in agony upon the cross. That's how intensely God loves sinners. You see what I mean? He's intense in his wrath. That's why there's a hell. And he's intense in his love. That's that's why there's a cross. God is all that he is. Love, wrath, mercy, justice, righteousness, truth. With a white, hot, holy intensity that makes him immensely difficult to describe. In my experience, no Secular author comes as close as C.S. Lewis did, who wrote a number of great and classic works, but is probably best remembered for his Chronicles of Narnia, that children's series in which he created a fantasy world which mirrors and is connected to our own world, a world that was created and is sovereignly ruled by the same God, Lewis calls him the emperor beyond the sea. A world that has been corrupted and is threatened by the same evil and is redeemed by the same Christ who in Narnia takes the form of a majestic lion by the name of Aslan. And throughout the seven books, Aslan appears rather infrequently, yet somehow Lewis always manages to make him the main character in every book. We're first introduced to Aslan in The first book in the series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in which he redeems Narnia from the curse of the white witch by his appearing. When Aslan appears in Narnia, winter begins to melt. And by his atoning and substitutionary death upon the stone table in the place of Edmund, who had betrayed his brothers and sisters, a death which fulfilled the demands of the law, what Lewis called the deep magic from the dawn of time. And by his resurrection from the dead. 
Near the beginning of the book, when the, when the beavers are telling the Pevensey children who have stumbled into Narnia through the wardrobe, they're telling them about Aslan, the great lion. And Susan asks the beavers, is, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver's telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's depth. He's not safe, but he's good. At the end of the book, Mr. Beaver says of Aslan that he doesn't like to be tied down, that he can't be controlled. He's wild, you know, Mr. Beaver says. He's not like a tame lion. He's wild, not tame. He's good, but not safe. But of all of the, all of the wonderful examples of this kind to be found in Lewis's epic fantasy, my favorite comes from the second to last book, which is called The Silver Chair. In this story, there's a schoolgirl named Jill who has not yet met Aslan, and she's lost and alone and wandering in Narnia, and she's dying of thirst. And from inside the forest where she is sort of stumbling in the darkness, she hears the sound of flowing water, and she emerges from the tree line, and she sees before her a crisp, cool stream. But as soon as she spies the flowing stream, she suddenly stops in her tracks, absolutely terrified. Because there, sitting rather calmly beside the stream, is an enormous lion. And the lion looks at her and speaks, saying, if you are thirsty, come and drink. And Lewis describes the lion's voice as, quote, deeper, wilder, and stronger than a man's. A heavy, golden voice. It did not make her... any less frightened that she had been than she had been before, but it made her frightened in rather a different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to not to do anything to me if I come? said Jill. I make no promises, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat, girls? she asked. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming a step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. That is exactly the tone struck by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12. 
there is a stream of living water, and we've been introduced to it for chapters now. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. There is sprinkled blood, he says, that speaks better than the blood of Abel. And in this stream, there is cleansing of conscience that can be found nowhere else. There is forgiveness of sins. There is everlasting life and righteousness promised to our weary souls. But beside this stream, there is a lion who is wild and untamed. There is a king who resides in Zion who is good but not safe. And he is a God who is dangerous. He is a consuming fire who has devoured girls and boys, men and women, cities and realms, kings and emperors. A God who will one day, he says, shake the heavens and the earth so as to bring this entire world into a judgment and to its appointed end. But, but, and here has been the author's whole point from chapter 1 through the end of chapter 12, there is no other stream. And if you do not come and drink from the stream of Christ, you will die. Hebrews 12, 25 to 29 marks the last of the warnings of Hebrews. These warnings have been terrifying and they are intended to be. They form a challenge to the prevailing shallowness of the God of popular evangelicalism. The mercy, the justice, the wrath, the grace, the righteousness, the holiness of this God are fierce and untamed and wild and above all, good. Our God, he says, is a consuming fire. And he will either consume us in the fire of his redeeming love Or he will consume us in the fires of his righteous wrath. This is the God with whom we have to do. He is intense and he will not be ignored. And that's the main reason for this concluding passage in Hebrews chapter 12. This final warning. It is written so that we, the people of First Baptist Nixa, would not refuse Him who speaks from heaven. So the call of this text to you this morning is to hear His voice and to come and drink. The structure of this passage is not difficult to see. You'll see it reflected in the bulletin. If you want to follow along there, I'll just point it out to you before we get started. It begins with a negative exhortation. Do not refuse Him who speaks. And it follows it up with a reason. Because God will shake the world in judgment. And then it gives a positive exhortation. Respond to God's voice in grateful worship with reverence and awe. And it grounds it in another reason. Because our God is giving us an unshakable kingdom and He is a consuming fire. So we'll begin with the first exhortation up there at the beginning of verse 25. Here's the main point. Okay, One of two main points this morning. See to it that you, and you should put yourself in that you because the present tense, notice it. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. 
He is speaking to you, First Baptist Nixa, this morning. See to it that you do not refuse him. We really should consider verses 25 through 29 and verses 18 through 24 together in order to see what the, what the author is doing. You'll remember a couple weeks ago, back in 18 to 24, that the author contrasted the darkness and the terror and the judgment of Sinai with the light and joy and freedom and grace of Mount Zion. Well, that same contrast, light and darkness, uh, judgment and salvation, fear and joy and freedom, that same contrast is carried on over into verses 25 to 29. They're connected by the same word. It's the word refuse. The word refuse in verse 25 is exactly the same word that is translated in my Bible. They begged that no further word would be spoken to them, right? He spoke in such a way that they refused to listen anymore. That's what he says in verses 18 and 19. And then he turns around in verse 25 and he says, But you, see to it that you don't refuse him. So he's hearkening back to Old Testament Israel as he's saying, They refused to listen to him who spoke from Sinai, to him who spoke from earth. And we remember that from our, from our reading of Exodus chapter 20. It says that when, when God spoke from Mount Sinai, the people trembled before the foot of the mountain and they begged that he would stop. They begged that God would stop speaking to them. Let not God speak to us or we will die, they said. Now then, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, we will die. And the author of Hebrews takes that story and he comes and he applies it to his congregation and to us. And he says, you know what? They had it exactly backwards. They thought if they heard the voice of God, they would die. And he's saying, the opposite in fact is true. If you refuse to hear the voice of God, you will die. For man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We must not hide from the voice of God. We need to hear the voice of God. So do not refuse him who speaks. And notice the present tense. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Present, continue. God is still speaking. No longer from Sinai, but he is still speaking from Zion. How? How is he still speaking and what does he have to say? Well, how did this book begin? God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. God has spoken finally in His Son, and He still speaks in His Word and by His Spirit. God has been speaking to us through our study of the book of Hebrews. You understand that? God has been speaking from Zion in His Son to us by the Word through His Spirit. Have you heard what he's been saying? He's been speaking to us of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. 
He's been speaking to us of a better covenant. Founded upon better blood. Given by a better mediator. Who is now a better priest. Who affects a better salvation for the people of God. These, he says, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. These words of God from Zion. They are living and active by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as they are read and as they are preached, God is addressing His people. Have you heard what He has said? Have you not heard His voice calling us to faith? Calling us to perseverance? Calling us, saying, draw near with confidence. That you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. So do not refuse him who speaks. Do not, do not sit back as a passive observer of this word and hear, hear a call like this from Hebrews chapter 4. And verse 16, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace And not hear that as a word from the living God to you, imploring, inviting you to draw near to the throne of grace through the blood of Christ. Do not refuse him who speaks. Why? Because God will shake the world in judgment, that's what he says. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if those did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth... Much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Sinai is not the only place where Israel turned away from the word of God. In fact, turning away from his word was the persistent posture of the people of God throughout their wilderness journeys. All the way to the border of the promised land where they refused to believe God's promise of grace and strength and victory and instead turned away from the land of promise in rebellion and in unbelief. And and as the author told us in Hebrews chapter 3, God condemned them to perish in the wilderness. So we see that they were not able to enter God's rest because of their unbelief, he said in 3.19. The New American Standard gets it wrong, by the way, when it refuses to capitalize him with a capital H, who warned them on earth. It it makes it seem as if the him who warned on earth is somehow different from the him who warns from heaven. It's the same him. I guess they're thinking that maybe it's Moses who warned on earth. No, the, the context of the passage, in particular verse 26 that follows, leaves no doubt that him who warned on earth is the Lord at Sinai. And him who warns from heaven is the Lord from Zion. So the argument moves from the lesser to the greater. Here's how it works. If God destroyed those who refused to believe His voice from Sinai, how much more will He destroy those who refuse to heed His voice from Zion? If God destroyed those who forsook the old covenant in unbelief, How much more will he destroy those who forsake the new covenant in apostasy? If God destroyed those who rejected the temporary shadow, the shadowy temple, the shadowy sacrifices, the shadowy priests, the shadowy covenant, 
how much more will they perish everlastingly who forsake the substance and the reality who is Christ and His atoning blood? Philip Hughes nails it when he writes, quote, the warning against apostasy under the old covenant of law was terrible enough. More terrible still is the warning of the consequences which will overwhelm those who defect from the new covenant of grace. Five times, five Sundays in the past 11 months that we've been in Hebrews, I have stood before you and said, if you turn away from Christ, you will die and be damned. Do not refuse to listen. It's the last warning that we will come across in the book of Hebrews. Hear it. Do not refuse Him who is speaking because those who refuse will perish in an even greater extent than did Israel perish in the wilderness. He then reinforces this warning with a reminder of God's fearful promise of the coming judgment. Verses 26 and 27. He says, And His voice shook the earth then. You remember when He spoke, the mountain rumbled and trembled. His voice shook the earth then, but now He has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, He says, yet once more denotes the removing of things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those which cannot be shaken may remain. Now again, we're moving from the lesser to the greater, from the shadow to the substance, from the type to the reality. He's saying that when God thundered from Sinai, the mountain quaked and the earth shook. But then he quotes from Haggai 2.6 in which God promises that a day is coming when He'll shake not only the earth, but the heavens, so the heavens and the earth, all of the created order, all of creation will shake in terror at the coming judgment of God. So the... So the force of verses 25 to 28 and the first of the two points of this passage of Hebrews 12 is this. I'll say it one more time. First Baptist Nixa, do not refuse him who speaks from Zion. Do not turn away from him who warns from heaven. For all those who refuse to hear His voice and all those who refuse to heed His warning will be destroyed on that day when God shakes both the heavens and the earth in His judgment. When God tears down this old order of creation in the preparation of making all things new. If you would inherit the everlasting new heavens and new earth, you must hear His voice and heed His warning. That's point one. Point two. He then follows that up with a positive exhortation. Therefore, verse 28, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable servants with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The opposite of refusing to hear His voice is hearing His voice and responding In grateful worship. The Heidelberg Catechism was a document produced in the 16th century in Reformed Germany. It's one of the great Reformed confessional documents which still holds a a revered place in many Protestant churches today. 
the whole catechism, which is a lengthy document, is organized under three main headings, guilt, grace, and gratitude. In, in the section of under guilt, it expounds the fall of man and the doctrine of sin and the law. In the second section entitled grace, it contains the doctrine of redemption, both accomplished in Christ and applied by the Holy Spirit. But then it asks the question, what do we do when God has rescued us by His grace from our guilt? Well, there is only one response, and that response is gratitude. And so the author organizes, the author of the catechism organizes all of the Christian life under one word, gratitude. Gratitude is the sum and substance of the Christian response to the grace of God received in salvation. Our repentance, our glad obedience to His Word, our worship, our evangelism, our offerings, everything is done in glad and grateful response to the God who has freely justified us in Christ and has brought us into His kingdom and glory. So out of this heartfelt gratitude for the grace of God received in the new covenant, the author of Hebrews says that we offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Now again, I'm going to be switching translations, by the way, here in about four weeks. We're going to finish the book of Hebrews with the New American Standard, and then I'm going to switch to the English Standard Version when we begin the next series in Malachi. And the reason for that is I haven't been terribly happy with the way that the book of Hebrews has been translated at a number of points. And one of them is here. Your, your Bibles may have the word worship. Mine has the word service, which is a, an accurate translation, but I don't think conveys exactly what the author wants us to see. If you're in the NIV or the ESV, you'll have the word worship. And what is what is being conveyed is that service of worship which the priests offered in the temple of the Old Covenant. When they brought before the Lord sacrifices and offerings of bulls and goats and grain and new wine, that was, that was a service of worship to God. And, and the author of Hebrews is saying that in the New Covenant... We are, are the royal priesthood. We are the priests of the living God. And we offer to God, not bulls and goats, and not grain and new wine, but we offer to God ourselves. We offer to God our worship, our, our glad obedience. Everything that we are, we offer to God out of gratitude. Not out of compulsion, not out of a sense of obligation, not out of a fear that God will zap us if we don't, but out of gratitude for the grace which we have received in salvation, the grace which we have found in Christ, we offer our worship as this royal priesthood unto God, and our worship is a satisfying aroma before His presence. In just a few moments, we're going to do this. That's why we move the sermon up and move the worship down in the order. We're going to do this. It's saying, do not refuse him who speaks, but rather, rather respond to God in grateful worship. And we're going to do that. And as we do, as we enter into God's presence in worship and we offer to him our grateful worship with reverence and awe, you ought to... You ought to Think of God receiving our worship and being pleased. 
being satisfied with the praises of His people. And notice, and this was the point of the introduction, the worship which we will offer in a few moments, it will not be offered glibly or casually. It is offered with reverence and awe. Why? Verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. In our small group series, we've been walking through Matt Chandler's study of holiness. And he he said that holiness begins with a vision of the holiness of God. And the holiness of God, he said, is described by an imposing grandeur. And he said it's, it's, it's that sort of tinge of fear that you get when you stand on the precipice of the Grand Canyon and you know that if something goes wrong, I could die. That's that's the tone struck by the author here. Respond to God in grateful worship, but with reverence and awe. Why? Because our God burns with holiness. Is it Is it possible to love and fear God at the same time? You bet. You must. Or else the God you're worshiping is not the God of the Bible. When your God is a consuming fire, you love Him and you fear Him. Again, this is why I love Lewis's description of of Aslan, the lion. You remember what Mrs. Beaver says of him? If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either either braver than most or just plain silly. There there are times in in Lewis's stories when Aslan is displeased with something and he emits this low growl. And this, this low growl is enough to make those who hear it just fall to their faces in fear. And when he roars, the dead come to life. And, and, and throughout these stories, no one, no one ever dares attempt to deceive him. They just instinctively know that it's futile. You cannot lie to Aslan. And yet Lewis writes him, with a tenderness that makes you feel as if his presence is the safest and happiest place in the world. He wrestles playfully with the children. He lets them run their hands through his golden mane. The Narnian characters are irresistibly drawn to him. The others are repulsed by him. And this... Tension is commended to us in verses 28 and 29. The same God who says, draw near, come to me. Come to me and I will give you mercy and grace and I will shower cleansing upon you and the forgiveness of sins and you will know love and joy and happiness that you never dreamt of. But you come carefully. With reverence and awe because I burn. I am a consuming fire. So come to God. Courageously. 
carefully. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. So why do we respond to God in grateful worship? Because He is giving us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. What kingdom is that? We've already covered it. Verses 23 and 24. It's Zion. It's the city of the living God. It's the better country that was the hope of all the patriarchs. It's the heavenly Jerusalem where there are the myriads of angels in festal gathering and the church of the firstborn whose names are enrolled in heaven where God the judge also dwells in the midst of the spirits of the righteous made perfect and where, where there is Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and, and the blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. That's the unshakable kingdom. And God is giving it to us now by faith. And He will bring us into it then by sight. One day we shall enter into Zion in glorious resurrected bodies, body and soul into this wonderful, physical, spiritual, everlastingly pure and glorious reality. Now we enter into this kingdom by faith in the blood of God's Son So whether now spiritually by faith or then in the future by sight, God is giving to His people a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And this is the promise that has sustained and has consumed and has driven God's people ever since the fall of man and God's grace came in and offered a redeeming sacrifice and the promise to Abraham. This was Abraham's hope of the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is, and is God. This is the everlasting inheritance that is promised to all of Abraham's descendants according to the faith. All of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Therefore, in just a few minutes, what do you, what do you, what do you do when the king of all creation gives all that he has to you? What is there to do but to worship? It's the flow of the text. What do you do with a book like Hebrews? You worship. What do you do with the God who is the consuming fire? You worship. There is no other kingdom that will endure when God shakes the heavens and the earth. There is no other mountain to which you may flee for refuge in that day than Zion. There is no other blood, no other sacrifice that can atone for sin and cleanse the conscience. There is no other covenant, no other way to relate to God but the new covenant of grace. And there is no other priest, no other mediator who can take your confession and intercede for you before the throne of God. There is no other stream. So come and drink. Is he safe? Heavens no. Haven't you been hearing what I've been telling you? Of course he isn't safe. Our God is a consuming fire. He is wild and he is fierce and he is untamed and he is unquenchingly holy. Safe. But he's good. He's good. 